This content was created by a SIPSI special interest group. All opinions shared are those of the individual. The material has not been peer-reviewed by SIPSI for adherence to SIPSI guidance or advice. Welcome to a, a new podcast, and today I'm joined by Owen Connick, who's the Technical Director of Breathing Buildings. Hi. Hi. So, Owen, how did you end up working in the built environment? Via a slightly odd route, actually, Chris. I started off uh, studying aeronautical engineering as an undergraduate. Uh, I was really interested in airflows and aeroplanes, as you do, and something difficult and challenging to do as a, as a teenager. Um, through, through studying aeronautical engineering, I got a really interested in wind energy in the built environment and wind energy in general, wind turbines. So how, how did you get into wind energy in the built environment from, from planes? Though? Well, uh, part of the course, part of the undergraduate course uh, was covering the design of wind turbines actually. Okay. So the design of a wind turbine blade is actually something in terms of aerodynamically the basics of it can be understood by an undergraduate which was really great because okay. I was able to in my second year in university write a spreadsheet that would design the profile, the taper width and the uh, aerofoil profile of a wind turbine blade, which right, is fantastic. Okay. We actually also had a design project as an undergraduate team to make a small version of a wind turbine. So everyone made these roughly one meter diameter wind turbine blades and we put them in one of the wind tunnels mm -hmm. and we tested them and we got the efficiencies out of them and how much energy we were able to generate from a, from a set wind speed. There was one particular academic in the department who was really interested in sustainability but also wind energy who actually um, was monitoring wind speeds using an anemometer on the rooftop of his own house in South London okay. and thought he'd set a student project to investigate what the potential wind energy was. Yeah. Now, at now in 2019 there's a general understanding and consensus that trying to generate energy from the wind in the built environment is a completely terrible idea and nobody should do it. In, in terms of like an urban environment? In terms of an urban environment. Because I remember, was it Cameron that put some wind turbine uh -huh. on, his, on so his house? Back in 2004-05 when yeah. I was an undergraduate, actually people seemed to think it was a good idea. B&Q sold a very popular product for about <laughs> £5,000. David Cameron had two or three of them on top of his house and there are numerous examples around London in particular where people bought these items. When you do the study and you look at what the actual average wind speeds are and how much energy you could extract from those, even if you had a really efficiently operating device, it becomes totally nonsensical to put wind energy generating devices in an urban environment. You're much better off putting them, as we do, in the North Sea, on the highlands of Scotland, places where the wind is clean, the airflow is less disturbed, okay. and there's actually more power in the wind to be extracted. But at the time, that wasn't really known, so I did a project looking at it, and, and actually our conclusion now chimes with what everybody knows. So it's okay. quite fun. So how did you get from wind turbines on, on houses into ventilating houses? Well, as things tend to work, it's sort of, you know, you get chatting to people. So I got chatting to a couple of different academics who were working in this field, and was introduced to one academic who was working in the civil world, but also looking at fluid dynamics. So he was looking at airflows around buildings and airflows within buildings. Okay. I was coming to the end of my undergraduate degree and thinking, I quite like this academic lark. Yeah. I fancy doing perhaps a PhD. So I started chatting and eventually was offered a place to take a PhD on, um, and the remit of my PhD was as broad as fluid mechanics in the built environment. So I got given that scope and told his three years worth of funding go Go and do whatever takes your fancy within that vague field. Go and do it. So, so I did. So I started looking into all sorts of different aspects of airflow onto facades of buildings. Mm -hmm. I looked at ventilated facades. I looked at sort of atrium-style natural ventilation schemes. I was really keen on, you know, as a lot of people are, on the idea that, you know, energy consumption in the built environment was a huge issue. 
And then yeah. we had to start looking at this and saying, well, look, if, and I happen to know that off the top of my head, roughly 45% of the energy consumption in the UK is within buildings. Right. That's, a, that's a lot then. Versus transport, mm -hmm. which is something like 30%. Okay. So it's a huge amount of the energy consumption in the, in the UK is in the built environment. So I said, well, how much of that is HVAC? And moving air around buildings, heating and cooling that air, is half of that 45%. Wow. So you've got something like more than 20% of all the energy consumed in the UK is heating, ventilating and cooling buildings. Now, given that I know it's possible to use the internal heat gains, manage the airflows naturally, it seems like there's a huge chunk of the UK's energy consumption that can be targeted there, and there's a big win. Yes. So that really drives a passion in me, which thinks you know there's a, there's a big impact to be had here. Because presumably, historically, we wouldn't have used so much energy in our buildings to, to ventilate them. I mean, historically, you can actually look at the history of air conditioning in buildings. It goes mm -hmm. back quite a long way, I think. Um, and, and certainly, you know, what I'm talking about is, is the whole thing of how you provide comfortable internal environments. So it includes the energy you would use in heatings. Right. <clears throat> so actually, one could argue, if you went back far enough, using an open fire to heat a building is not yeah. a very efficient means of heating that building, perhaps. <laughs> But and actually, insulation standards are one of the things that's improved so much in recent years that we don't need anywhere near as much heat in buildings in the heating season now right, as we did previously when we had leaky, thermally massive buildings. So, so we've got to a, a stage now where our, our building regulations are driving well-insulated buildings and making them airtight. Yep. So, so previously air could travel through nooks and crannies and, and get out and, and create drafts maybe, but also just create some form of infiltration of air mm. that is providing a level of background ventilation. But now that we're driving more insulated and airtight buildings, we're, we're reducing that amount of infiltration. So we've got to really focus more heavily on, on how we provide purpose-provided ventilation. Yeah, so it gives you the opportunity to more intelligently provide that ventilation okay. rather than perhaps not being aware of exactly where that infiltration, exfiltration was taking place in the building and how much it was. So it's in some, certain, in some situations you'll want you know, a certain amount of, let's call it, leakiness or infiltration into a mm -hmm. space because that's a nice level of background ventilation. Yeah. But what's great now, I think, is we have the opportunity to understand that and manage it. Mm -hmm. Whereas in older, leakier buildings, it was there whether you wanted it or not. Yeah. So even if the room was unoccupied or during the evening, that continuous infiltration is happening and, and probably cooling the fabric of the building during, during the winter season. Yeah, and that would, that would be wasteful yes. in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so I ended up getting really interested in, in the aspects of low energy ventilation in buildings. And mm -hmm. I was actually going to do a research PhD fully focused on natural ventilation. You know, pure uh, buoyancy driven flow, wind driven natural ventilation with um, just natural forcing. And, and there's quite a lot of literature in that space, particularly in the academic world. And I started to think, oh, it's, it's not saturated by any means, but I was struggling to find a niche where I could add value and really see a purpose. Mm -hmm. And then I happened on the idea of what if you took a, a room or a building which was predominantly naturally ventilated mm -hmm. and you add some kind of mechanical assistance or forcing to the system. So a perfect example is a, a room such as the one we're sat in now which has an opening window to the outside but also has a fan in the wall. Okay. So if you were to open the window you would get some natural ventilation so there's no 
energy consumption, let's say, associated with that, mm -hmm. if that was insufficient, you could then turn the fan on and increase somehow or try and boost the ventilation rate. Now I found when you look into buildings in general or spaces, almost all buildings fall into this category of what I started calling hybrid ventilation. There's a little bit of research that had been done, some really interesting research done in Denmark around this area, and then I found that there was a lot of scope for me to contribute. So I got really interested in so when you hybrid. Say, so when you say hybrid, we're, we're talking about mixing two different styles, or is it using them in conjunction, or, or a bit of both? The term encompasses all of them. It can encompass, say, um, a ventilation scheme which at certain times of the day or year is natural and at other times of the day or year is purely mechanical, okay. and that would be a hybrid scheme across. Yes. Or a scheme where, a ventilation design where the two systems work together in the same space at the same time. Right. And I think both are covered by the terms hybrid or mixed mode. Um, so control is probably going to be a, a key issue then in, in such a situation. If you've got, let's say, two distinct design solutions within a space, but they need to work in conjunction with each other depending upon certain conditions, is, is that a, a big issue? Or, or Yeah, so control that? and in particular even taking a step back from control, understanding what the impact will be of you imposing some mechanical forcing on the predominantly natural ventilation scheme. Right. So when I started doing my research, there was a very good understanding of if you took a, a room with a low-level opening and a high-level opening, mm -hmm. and the room was warmer than the outside, you will generate a buoyancy-driven natural ventilation flow. So an opening could be, what, say, a window or a louver? Yeah, or an opening could be, I mean, the perfect example is often a sash window, which has a high-level and a low-level okay, opening, yes, yeah. so that you can generate a, a, a buoyancy-driven flow through that, through mm -hmm. the inflow through the low-level and outflow through the high-level. So that's fairly well understood and fairly well modelled mathematically, yes. so that when we implement solutions in thermal modelling softwares such as EDSL TAS or IES virtual environment, that's the maths in the very back end mm -hmm. which is actually solving the problem for you. What was less well understood in mathematical terms was what happens if you either blow some air into that room or suck yes. some air out of that room, how yes. does it change the flow rates you would expect? The, the simple question of if I have 10 litres per second naturally, and I add 10 litres per second mechanically, what is the net flow? Is it 20? It's not 20. I see. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only thing we can say. <laughs> but the, the answer of what is it is quite complicated to solve. So that was... Because there's so many unknowns in the equation that you can't... You end up with more variables, yeah, and right. you're solving a much more complicated equation. So yeah. it, can, it can be calculated, but it's... M it's another level of complexity over yeah. and above the natural ventilation problem on its own. Whereas, ideally, when you're designing things, you want a, a quick rule of thumb kind of calculation that gives you a bit of confidence that the solution you're starting with is, is going to yeah. work. And that's kind of where we started. We tried to plot some charts that said that plotted, say, natural ventilation flow rate against forced ventilation flow rate, and, mm -hmm. and said, well, what's the shape of that curve okay. to give that rule of thumb? Yeah. And then, obviously, being academics, we wanted to write down exactly what the mathematics was so that somebody could then take that away and implement it in a model if they if they so wish. Okay so let's step back a little bit more because that's, that's really interesting Owen um, and we've been talking about ventilating buildings and that ventilating buildings takes up quite a lot of energy so why do we ventilate buildings at all anyway? Yeah I, I do this um, I do ask this question to other people sometimes I say well what's the lowest energy solution for, for this room? Well I seal it <laughs> and that's it. Yes. <laughs> There's no energy consumption in that scheme. <laughs> you will die. 
<laughs> but that wasn't part of the remit, so that's okay. <laughs> so why do we ventilate buildings? We want to provide comfortable internal environments. Mm -hmm. That is the primary goal. Yeah. So, so always, how do you measure that comfort? Though? In in numbers of different ways. A big part of it is thermal comfort. Mm -hmm. So thermally, do we feel comfortable in this environment? And that's a product of not just the air temperature. Actually, it's a it's a product of the air temperature, the temperature of surfaces to which we're exposed, and the humidity within right. the room. But thermal comfort, and let's say it encompasses those things, is a big, big factor. We don't want to sit here freezing cold. We don't want to sit here roasting hot. Okay. The second one is then what I would term uh, air quality. Okay. So thermal comfort is one aspect. Air quality is another. Air quality, again, has a number of different parameters we could measure in order to infer or imply whether the air quality is good. And there are guidelines around what you know the limits on those parameters should be. One of the biggest indicators used across the industry is the level of CO2 in a space. When we breathe, we take oxygen out of the air and we release CO2 into the air. So if we are all in a room breathing, the level of CO2 will gradually rise. Okay. Um, so that's a very good indicator. There are but many... the CO2 itself doesn't necessarily cause us any problems, does it, in, in terms of a physiological response to to CO2. It, it... You have to get to a very high level of CO2 in a space for it to cause any kind of danger, let's mm -hmm. say, but there is evidence to suggest that there's a significant drop-off in, uh, I'm going to say cognitive ability, which may be the wrong term, but performance, let's say, of people who are working in a CO2-heavy environment. Right. We, Breathing Buildings, uh, have a heavy influence in schools, so I'll use an right. example so, of a school okay. classroom. There are a number of studies looking at children's performance based on the level of CO2 in the space, and there's evidence to suggest that above a certain threshold, children's performance starts to deteriorate, and right. therefore it's worth having good levels of CO2, which means low levels of CO2 in, in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And does that also mean that there's low levels of, say, the pollutants that might, might be in the space? Could, could they be a factor affecting it certainly could be. It certainly could be. So CO2 is often thought of as a good indicator or tracer of right, other air quality parameters yes. in the space. So yeah. if you are managing the level of CO2 to be somewhere close to the level of outside, mm -hmm. then you're doing that by providing ventilation yeah. and removing that CO2. And thereby you are also removing whatever other pollutants may be in that space. Mm -hmm. And they may be a, a plethora of other things. Um, which may be harder to measure or impossible to measure okay. even, whereas CO2, the measurement of it is, is a fairly well-defined sort of field. Because I know when I've gone into, like say, uh, a meeting room, after a meeting's taken place and there's been probably more people in the room than it's designed to take, you, you go in, it, it, it does have a sense of stuffiness and quite often maybe a little bit pongy as well. Is that because of the room's not ventilated properly or, or maybe, like I said, there's probably too many people in there in the first place? Yeah, it's because it's not, the ventilation hasn't been appropriate for the number of people in there. Mm -hmm. And like you described a few things, so stuffiness mm -hmm. is, is often associated with and is a general feeling when the CO2 level is high. But it's also, if you were to measure other parameters, you measured the odours. Yes. So we, we can, there are certain ways of measuring odours in, in a space, but it's less common than, than measuring CO2 in a space, which is common. And, and also, you know, stuffiness can often be associated with if we're all in a room breathing out and body heat is coming off us, mm -hmm. the, the humidity in that space is probably going to gradually rise as well. So okay. you're probably 
you're probably experiencing higher CO2 than would be preferable odours which are just naturally generated by mm -hmm. people and elevated humidity in that space, all of which which make it less comfortable. So in that case then it's going to be important to be ventilating all year round when a space is occupied, not something that you can just switch on and off. So I guess the most convenient way of ventilating a space would be a window, because people are used to opening and closing windows. However, I know from my experience, in the, in the wintertime it seems counterintuitive to be opening a window. Yeah, um, as I said, we get involved in lots and lots of hybrid or mixed mode ventilation designs. Mm -hmm. I am a huge fan of providing opening windows, mm -hmm. openable windows in every space. I personally don't like feeling that I'm not in control of whether or not I open a window or whether or not I provide ventilation to the space I'm in. So it gives me personally a sense of, you know, comfort that I'm in control. Okay. So if I'm in a room with a window I could open and I choose not to and it gets stuffy, I'm sort of I'm responsible for my own uh, <laughs> environment there. But yeah, certainly openable windows in spaces are a really convenient means of allowing people to adjust to their internal environment. So mm -hmm. when the room is unoccupied, we would encourage people obviously to be sensible and close the windows when they leave the room. But then if you do have a meeting in that space and there is the ability to bring outside air in, then that's generally going to help provide ventilation to that space. There's a caveat on openable windows in, in certain environments. You know, mm -hmm. if you are on the ground floor adjacent to a busy road, Right. then you have to be realistic about other parameters which may yes. preclude the ability to open a window. So um, that would be noise and pollution? Probably those two being the biggest. Mm -hmm. um, so noise in particular, that if you open a window it becomes the use of the room is, is compromised. And then pollution. If the outside air, and I was actually quite careful to use the term outside air rather than fresh air, okay. which it, I don't always get right, <laughs> but some people will argue that outside air does not imply that that air is fresh, which is fair because you may be in a polluted, you know, we've, we've all read the stats, we're on the outskirts of London here, we've all read the stats about London breaking its um, EU target. And there are places where the outside air quality is not good enough mm -hmm. for opening a window to be a good means of freshening, let's say, the internal space. You may end up worsening the internal space by bringing pollutants from the outside. Um, we didn't dwell too much on other pollutants, but so CO2 is the big measured parameter internally, but pollutants which are can be brought in if the air quality outside is bad and are harmful to health. Key ones from traffic are PMs. Which is particulate matter? I believe so. Um, and there are different sort of particle sizes which mm -hmm. have different effects. Um, and then um, NO2, which is a generate, generated from vehicle emissions and in particular um, diesel, diesel car emissions, yes. which has been a huge factor in the drift in government policy away from diesel cars mm -hmm. is a greater awareness of the harmful effects that high levels of NO2 can have. So coming back to ventilating our spaces, this counterintuitive sense that I have that in the winter, if, if I open some ventilation device, I'm bringing this outside air, as you describe it, but this outside air is generally in the wintertime considerably colder than the internal air and can lead to discomfort, which or, or even the sense that if I've got the window opening, I'm, I'm heating the world because all my heat is leaving the building. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I suppose when I was referring to, you know, wanting to open the window, I'm thinking in the UK we have a fairly temperate climate and you think of days when it would be nice. But you're quite right that there is quite a lot, quite a large proportion of the year 
in the UK when the outside air temperature is too cold for that air to be directly brought in onto occupants because we would find it uncomfortable. Today we're sat here, it's the middle of October, and the outside air temperature is approximately 11 degrees C. Mm -hmm. So if we were to open a window directly into this room and I was sat adjacent to that window, that would be uncomfortably cold for but, me. But if you were a bit further away from the window or if the vent was a bit higher, is there a way that you can easily calculate whether or not you would be comfortable or, or get a sense of that comfort? There is an opportunity there. So what you're kind of getting at is that if we were to, rather than open a window which is at, say, occupied height, which is generally taken to be about a metre and a half off the floor, if we open a window at that height, it's a cold draft. However, is there some way whereby we can bring that cold air in but mix it with the air in the room before it hits us in the mm -hmm. occupied zone? And the answer is yes, there are ways of doing that. So one, um, one good way of doing that is having split windows where you have the ability to open a, a narrow vent very close to the ceiling. Okay. So if you can bring that fresh air in, outside air in mm -hmm. as close to the ceiling as possible, it has the opportunity to fall through the room before it hits the occupied zone. As cold air coming in falls through warmer in the room, it will right. mix that's as it. a plume of cold air. And, and kind of get tempered by the air that's already in the space. Exactly, yeah. So as it, as it falls, it mixes, and the average temperature of that air coming in is then gradually increasing as it mixes. So is there a rule of thumb that a designer could use to see or get, or get a sense of what temperature that air might be by the time it reaches the occupied zone? There's certainly, um, to say there's a rule of thumb, it's probably challenging. To okay. say there is sort of a minimum room height mm -hmm. below which this won't work really. Okay. And that minimum room height is probably a floor to ceiling height of about three, three and a half meters. Okay, that's quite so high then. It's, tip, it's higher than most spaces, yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're a, if you have a floor to ceiling height of above three and a half meters, and then you have a vent near that ceiling, yeah. you imagine that air has got three and a half meters to one and a half meters. It's got two meters to fall mm -hmm. and mix and temper mm -hmm. before it hits the sensitive occupied zone. So that'd be okay for say I don't know like a hall in a in a school. That would be fine because they're going to be what eight ten meters high. Um, well, sports halls might be eight ten meters high. Primary school halls, for example, are usually sort of double height, so they tend to be sort of six okay. metres high. But again, that, that probably is sufficient. That's sufficient. So um, when we're talking about rooms that don't have a floor-to-ceiling height, there, a typical floor-to-ceiling might be 2.4 metres. What, what kind of solutions are there then? So I think if you've got that floor-to-ceiling height of, as you say, let, let's say it's 2.4 metres or so, which is very typical, um, you're not going to be able to generate enough mixing between air coming in at ceiling level and the occupied zone to guarantee that that would be comfortable in, you know, on a fairly cold day, even like today. And, and particularly the design point we like to use is a, is a roughly plus five degree C day because we, we have a lot of days. What, what do you mean by a plus five degree day? So a, a day when it's roughly five degrees C outside, you know, okay. a typical UK winter day, I would say. Yes. Um, we will often do modelling at colder temperatures to, to assess how the system would behave when it is very cold. Mm -hmm. But we don't get many days when it's very cold in our temperate UK yeah. environment. Particularly during the time when a building's going to be occupied, if we're talking about a non-domestic building. 
particularly during the day yeah. yeah yeah that's a good point you know we do get temperatures overnight where it drops down but it's it's not very common that between say 8 a.m and 6 p.m let's call that the occupied day yeah. that the temperature is, is very low so we, we like to use this plus five degrees c as a, as a nice design point for a typical say winter or mid-season day if you you still want to bring in outside air because you need to ventilate your room you want to somehow encourage the mixing of that outside air with the room air as we said, if you have a tall enough space, the mixing occurs naturally and it's happy mm -hmm. days. If you don't have a tall enough space, you probably need to revert to a kind of a hybrid scheme where that mixing element is provided with some fan assistance, but so the tempering were, of the air is achieved in, in a similar way. So there were some solutions that are available for that. So you, you could say a, a mechanical ventilation system or, or a small room MVHR system, that's a mechanical ventilation with heat recovery. But what kind of products do breathing buildings have that, that enable you to create this kind of mixing? Yeah, there are various ways of doing this. So let's say you've taken a view that you need to promote mixing of that fresh air as it comes in in order to mitigate cold drafts. How might you do that? Well, Breathing Buildings was actually the foundation of our company was on the basis of trying to promote this concept. Right. Um, so we started off with a, with a roof uh, terminal type idea. So imagine you've got a single story and you, you have um, access to the rooftop. Mm -hmm. You can provide a, a roof terminal which enables natural ventilation through the roof terminal but on days when it's too cold to bring that air in directly you will want to mix the incoming cool air with warm air from the room in order to temper it as we've been right. discussing. So Breathing Buildings um, brought to market a product which we call the E-Stack. Um, it essentially has a uh, roof terminal on the roof and a mixing box in the room. The mixing box is there to blend the warm air from the room with the cold air coming in in order to temper that, let's call it fresh air, being delivered to the space. So it's very it effective actually, okay. in, a, in a very low energy way. The, the driving force there then for the air through the, the terminal, is that wind driven or is it buoyancy driven and then that enters some plenum within the box where the mixing then takes place. Yep, that, that's almost exactly how it works. Yeah, so the buoyancy force is when the room is occupied, there is uh, a it, it, there is buoyancy in the room because people are providing heat to the space. Mm -hmm. So that provides a buoyancy driven flow. You also have this roof terminal on the roof, which is going to catch some wind driven flow. Okay. So you've got your two natural driving forces there, which are driving the bulk ventilation airflow. Yes. As we said, if we just allowed that cold outside air to dump into the space it would be uncomfortable and we wouldn't be meeting the primary goal which was comfort thermal comfort in this yeah. case so um, we say well what can we do and let's say what is the lowest energy solution to ensuring that we still achieve thermal comfort mm -hmm. and the solution we came up with was to use some fairly low powered fans and the fans we actually use in our e-stack products are conventional destratification fans the type you might find in restaurants when you're on holiday or in your kitchen, perhaps. Yes. Um, they're known as destratification fans. Uh, other people call them sometimes punker fans. I think okay, that was yeah. a brand back yeah. in the day. Yeah. Um, and, and essentially, they are designed to just mix air, really. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not, they're not they're incredibly efficient at driving air. They okay. can be used to drive air, mm -hmm. but that's not their primary purpose. Their primary purpose is to kind of move air around. So, so we found that that's a very effective way of mixing the warm air from the room with the cold incoming air and it provides ventilation, which you need in order to manage the air quality in the space, mm -hmm. but it doesn't do that at the expense of thermal comfort because it's mitigating cold drafts, which is another crucially important factor. So, yeah, as I say, Breathing Buildings was founded on the basis of saying, well, we've got this concept, this mm -hmm. e-stack mixing ventilation concept, which we'd like to promote to the world. Yes. And, and we've done very well at it. And actually what we've done is, is 
is grow and develop on that theme. So from the e-stack roof-based concept, we, we then encountered projects where people said, well, I have, I've got 2.4 metres ceilings, but I've got four storeys stacked on top of each other. I don't have direct access to the rooftop. So we then said, OK, well, let's go back to the, the R&D drawing board and let's all have a think about how we can do that. So in the meantime, you know, fan technology is improving all the time. Mm -hmm. And we now have products which we call NVHR, which is a, an acronym for natural ventilation with heat recycling, which enable the same mixing ventilation concept, but with a limited access to the outside via a facade louver. So if you have a 2.4 metre high ceiling, but you have perhaps a, a suspended ceiling as we do in this room, or you have the ability to put a louver on the facade, perhaps above the window head, mm -hmm. you can ventilate through the facade. The NVHR unit will draw fresh air in, blend it with air from the room. But when you say drawing, is that mechanically drawing the air in? It is, yeah. So what we're doing, again, coming back to what is the primary goal here? The primary goal is providing good air quality and yes. thermal comfort to the indoor space. Mm -hmm. The secondary goal is how can we do that whilst not wasting energy? Yes. So the NVHR unit actually uses a new generation of fan technology, which is much more efficient at moving air, less efficient at blending air, right. where the the D-strap fans were great yeah, for that, but yeah. more efficient at moving it. So what we do is we use the fan which is good at moving air, and we use that to entrain air from the room in order to blend the airstreams together. So unlike, a, let's say, mechanical ventilation with heat recovery that people might be familiar with, where the two airstreams are separate, and then they're kind of pushed through some kind of mesh where the, the heat is transferred, but the airstreams aren't. In the NVHR, the two airstreams are together in the plenum and mixing and passing each other. The two airstreams are deliberately blended in a managed way yes. because we want to be able to manage how much fresh air we blend with how much room air. So if it was a day like today, it's 11 degrees C outside, mm -hmm. it's 20 degrees C in this space. If, for example, we want to deliver air at ceiling level of 15 degrees C, which we would, we would blend at one to one. Okay. If the outside air temperature falls to, let's say, 5 degrees instead mm -hmm. of 11, we would want to blend more room air with the same one part of outside air. Okay. So we can do that by manipulating the ratio of, of those air streams. And that, does that still provide sufficient, say, outside air to keep the indoor air quality down? Or is there a compromise there at certain times of the year? Or can it deliver sufficient air anyway that you... Even though you bring in one part of outside air, that one part of outside air is still the amount that's needed to keep the indoor air quality lower. That's the way we work it, yeah. So all of our systems are demand controlled, so we're monitoring the internal room conditions. And the indicator we were discussing earlier that we use to monitor that is, is the room CO2. Yes. So that implies if the room CO2 is, is close to the outside, it implies that there isn't a demand for ventilation. And the vent unit would intelligently think, well, let's not waste any energy on mm -hmm. fan power, let's yes. do nothing. Yes. When it detects either a temperature rise or a CO2 rise in the space, that's a demand for ventilation and the unit will provide fresh air, outside air, in order to um, try to, to bring that parameter, whether it's CO2 or temperature, back down towards its set point. Okay. In terms of the limits of it, you know, if you, if you take uh, our typical school classroom and it's designed for an occupancy of say 35 people, um, you know, we would have sized the ventilation scheme in order to meet the vent requirements of, say, 35 people. The difficulty comes if you were to put 50 people in that space yes. 
and it was also combined with, let's say, a very cold day, yeah. then the system might struggle to meet the ventilation yeah. needs. But, but then it would be outside the design criteria anyway, so you, you, you can't expect to be designing for circumstances that, that might happen, but but aren't part of the, the design portfolio in the first place. I agree, I agree. But it is important then that those design criteria are appropriately set, yes. which means yes. you know conversation with the building user and mm -hmm. the, the building contractor who's actually providing mm -hmm. the space because they need to set that expectation early on because that's when the design is set. Now, and when you talk about designing the size of these devices, is this something that breathing buildings can do on behalf of designers? Yeah, so it's something we, we like to do actually because we want syst we want to install systems that work. We don't want to install systems that are inappropriate for a space. So we always like to get involved with air quality and thermal comfort assessments at design okay. stage so that we can say, look, this product will meet your needs mm -hmm. rather than somebody taking it off a, a catalogue and saying, oh, I'm going to buy that one yeah. when they haven't necessarily done an assessment of whether that appropriately meets their needs. Okay. Um, so, so we like to get involved, we think it's, it's a really good, you know, it, it allows us to engage with our clients and really get a dialogue going and make sure that what we're proposing to them is the appropriate solution for their space. Um, it's another thing that we try and do in terms of coming back to that, you know, we're trying to make sure we provide good thermal comfort, good air quality. And then the secondary goal is not sacrificing energy consumption for that. But then that means we come at every space or we look at every space with a head of saying, well, what is the most appropriate solution for this space? Mm -hmm. It means we're not, at least we, we definitely try not to be a company who shoehorns products in where they're not appropriate. Yeah. So we'll often look at spaces where there may be, you know, the ability to use a roof stack on some spaces or a facade-based NVHR system on other spaces. And there are landlocked rooms in that space. Well, we'll take a different view. You know, we'll look at the landlocked rooms individually and not just throw the same product at them because it may not be appropriate. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, we've done huge amounts of varied types of ventilation designs from atrium schemes where the central core of the building is used as a kind of big plenum of tempered fresh air and then each room almost breathes off the central core, okay. which, which yeah. is really attractive. Um, and we've done schemes where we achieve cross-ventilation through um, ventilation stacks, sort of chimneys on the mm -hmm. internal side, or using, again, an atrium as a kind of big internal chimney. Um, we've done some really interesting schemes which use a hybrid uh, ventilation strategy, which varies through the year and right. varies depending on the usage of the space. Okay. So if, if the typical usage of the space is fairly low occupancy, and you can do that with a managed natural ventilation strategy that's fantastic mm -hmm. because it's very low energy and it meets the needs for let's say that's 50 percent of the building usage yeah but let's say for 20 percent of that building's usage they're going to have a conference in there and they're going to flood the space with a number Lots of people, of people. Mm -hmm. on those days we want to do something different okay right? so when they do check 600 people in there we may need an air handling unit and we've done some really interesting projects in a similar way with um with shopping spaces where they look at okay typical usage you know through the day of a weekday is probably fairly low but when the Christmas sales are on it's the coldest day of the year and you check 1400 people in the space which is typically only got 100 people in it you know you need a sort of a robust strategy to deal with that change of use and a hybrid system is the only reasonable way in my view of, of and it's, it's good to have those kind of discussions at very early design stage I think in my experience because if you start to think of these later on in the design process the capital cost of having alternative ventilation solutions starts to then become prohibitive 
oh, it's, it's always the designer's thing, isn't it? We want to be involved early, we want to be involved early. And we certainly, a big part of my job at Breathing Builders is engaging with early stage building designs. You know, we, we do a lot of sessions where we'll go and have discussions with architecture practices and say, look, this is what we like, this is what we promote. You know, if you're working on a project and you want to bring us in while it's even uh, just at concept stage, you know, bring us in, we can talk to you about orientation of the building mm -hmm. and, and things like that, which may have a huge impact on what we can or can't do yeah. in terms of achieving a low energy ventilation solution for you. So yeah, certainly engaging as early as possible is, is wonderful. Um, and if there are any architects listening to the podcast and they want to get in touch, um, yeah, <laughs> give us a ring. We'd be happy to talk to you. And I'm sure for balance, we ought to say that. I'm sure there are other companies out there that also do other products that can ventilate your, your space. Yeah, but, yeah. And, but, and to be honest, most of the conversation we're having isn't really about products per mm -hmm. se. It's about concepts and it's yeah. about strategies and it's about ways of thinking. And yeah, you know, at the end of it, you have to put a product in there, mm -hmm. but I'm more keen on encouraging the design approach and the concept and the strategy. If we've, got, a, if we've got the right design, then we're going to end up with a building that is well ventilated and, and fit for purpose, yeah. rather than an expensive building that perhaps doesn't perform as well as it could. I completely agree, yeah. That's yeah. great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Owen. I've really enjoyed our discussion, and I hope the listeners have too. If anyone's got any comments, feel free to either tweet us or, or email us. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks, Chris.